Time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. We'll talk a little more about iOS security, and then he's going to answer your questions. A lot of conversation about cloud storage uh, and that kind of thing. Stay tuned. A, a really interesting security now is up next. Netcasts you love from people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 466, recorded July 29th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 193. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your loved ones online. And here he is, the security chief. The explainer extraordinaire, Mr. Stephen Gibson. It's good to see you, Steve. Great to be with you again, as always, our last podcast of July coming into August. We referred a little bit to you on MacBreak Weekly again this week because of our conversation about uh, Jonathan Zdarsky's uh, OS 8 or OS 7 security issues. And uh, yep. I think everybody has concluded that you are exactly right. In in uh, the de- to the degree which you worry about those security issues, yeah, to the exactly. In fact, I have a little follow up this week, both on that and Canvas fingerprinting, uh, a big errata fix, which is my comment that I'm sure you saw this too. You must have received tweets and things that v- iOS seven had not been jailbroken. Yeah, I should have stopped out, you on that one. That one, I wasn't. Yeah. Well, yeah. and it was it, he. Jonathan did write that, but as I commented, his paper right. was about uh, about ten months old. Right. And in fact, that was his comment: was that it wasn't until he created the PowerPoint presentation and did a an actual presentation that anyone noticed what he had written back in October of twenty. 13. So anyway, so that was old news. And so to, so to everyone who tweeted me, thank you for the correction. And uh, that's corrected. Well, uh, although, as Renee and- Ritchie was pointing out, the jailbreak is the bigger security f- flaw. I mean, if you're going to really talk about security issues, the fact that you can jailbreak it is a huge security issue, right? Yeah, although that, as I understand it, that's still... I mean, it requires the user themselves to jump through all kinds of hoops in right. order to make that happen. It's, it's not like, yeah. Although there yeah. have been one single button jailbreaks. I almost think that I mean, e- this is like me saying it ought to just be something you can do. Yeah, I, I you know, you ought to it ought it ought to not be this cat and mouse game between the consumer who owns the device and Apple who is fighting them over control. If the consumer knowingly says, I want freedom, they ought to be able to just press the button and get it. I well, of course, I, that's how it is on Android. There's a checkbox that says, per, we, is it okay to buy stuff in third-party stores? You check that box. They warn you. There's a risk inherent, and then you just do it. Yeah, and there's something you press like seven times, too, isn't there? And then yeah, you but you don't need to do that to jailbreak a, an Android device. You just It's a right. setting. Jailbreaking yeah. on the iPhone only really does one thing. It allows you to buy from somebody besides Apple, buy apps or download apps well, from somebody and, besides and Apple. It also, well, or, or to install apps yeah. other than from the curated, controlled right. That's it. environment. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, and so that's a checkbox in uh, Android. There is other stuff. Yeah, you can turn on developer mode with by tapping something seven times. And then many Android phones, but not all, can be rooted, uh, which is really more... You know, from for people like us who understand computers, that's, you know, getting... <laughs> well, who know what the word root means. Yeah, super user if permission. You, if you don't you know, know what that is, you should not you shouldn't do, do it. it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but that's the, uh, to me, that's the clear and distinct difference between iOS and Android. And if you want that, you should use Android. Right yeah, there. Boom. Right. Yeah. It seems risky. And I heard you, I heard, do, I heard you mentioning also that... That Samsung, despite their massively heavy advertising, is not the Android device you should buy. Yeah. Uh, you were liking the HTC I like. I currently use a HTC One, but there are many good choices, including, if it were easier to get, I'd probably recommend this very inexpensive but very nice uh, OnePlus One phone. It's only 300-some yep. bucks, and uh, it's a really nice state-of-the-art phone. And w there was just a, uh, was it a law passed? Or an exe no, I think it was. Didn't Obama sign an executive order? He hasn't signed it yet. It is a law that the, both the House and Senate have passed. And the reason yep. this is that, that says you can that you have the right, a legal right to unlock your unlock. phone uh, after you've had it for the contract period. It was you right. know it's come and gone. It was it was I think it was the Librarian of Congress that said you could do it. And yeah, then, and where did that? How did they get their feet in there? I thought Library of Congress. They were responsible what? for copyright and trademark and uh, huh? and uh, you know IP protection. I know, isn't that weird? It's just weird. The whole world is yeah. weird. <laughs> the uh, U.S. world is weird. Everybody in Europe's really? going. Wait a minute, you don't have. It's that, wait a minute. What are you saying? In Europe, it's not only legal; it's required that you that the carrier unlock the phone. Well, and I love the idea of the freedom that that would create after you've you know fulfilled your contract and you're not happy. Well, of course, with, you bought you know, this hardware. You should be able to run it any way you want. And it's not cheap. I mean, it you know it's seriously expensive stuff. I mean, you know, Apple's rolling in cash. So AT&T has done this for a while and uh, allowed customers to do this for a while. And now it's required that everybody offer that. Well, as soon as President Obama signs it. Will be, yeah. yeah. So um, uh, just to follow up on uh, the iOS security thing, uh, you know, there, there was, you know, after, or maybe it was the afternoon or the morning. Anyway, it was, it was just after last week's podcast App, and and I was I was saying last week Apple needs to respond, and as of last podcast they had not, and of course they, as I was saying it they were posting their response, which was to to just to sort of assert their position, which was that these the three main issues that Jonathan had were there for legitimate purposes. Now, he, he then, of course, defended his position as we would expect him to do um, just because it's a position and it's his, um, you know, saying, I'm still not happy. It's like, well, OK, you know, that's we, we're going to probably not agree to disagree. We're just going to disagree. Um, but, you know, so App Apple did what I expected. And Ars Technica continues to report this back and forth. And in, in and so Dan Gooden, who covers these things, uh, you know, covered the story that Apple responded and Jonathan wasn't happy. Uh, and down in the in the comments, there was one that I liked. Uh, someone posting as the shark wrote, "I'm trying to get upset over this latest revelation, but somehow I just can't." Take the PCAP vul uh, capability, for example. Why should I be worried? 
that a computer which I've already configured to sync my phone with and which is on the same Wi-Fi network can activate PCAP on my phone. That computer is almost certainly in a position to run PCAP locally and capture the Wi-Fi traffic if it wanted. There's no reason to think that PCAP on the phone is going to see traffic that the computer can't. It's the same thing with most of the other data which is accessible. A computer which I've chosen to sync with can actually access my contacts, my photos, and other data which I want to sync? This is a concern? Why? I can imagine some app developers getting worried that authentication tokens, which they don't sync and don't want users to be able to directly access, might now be available. But it's also easy to imagine how useful it would be in debugging your app to get access to those files as well. Sorry, Jonathan, but I'll be more impressed when you find an actual backdoor. This seems far more like a useful tool than a nefarious one to me. And I thought, yeah, I mean, that, that restates it, I think, pretty well. So, you know, it's been, and, I mean, but this is the way the security business works. And as I said, I'm not unhappy that Jonathan did this. Um, Apple needs to know that this that their work is being scrutinized and that we're all just not cheap following them uh, and accepting everything that they say. For example, they're still arguing that iMessage is secure and we absolutely know that it's not. That because they are the curator of the certificates and there's no visibility at all into the certificates that we're receiving from them, which we're using to sign our messages to its recipients, nothing prevents them from slipping one of their own in and we sign that and they're able to to tap our iMessage. So, you know, but again, uh, this kind of, of uh, analysis is what we need. Um, I found, thanks to um, a listener, a site which demonstrates canvas fingerprinting leo and you should go there browserleaks.com slash canvas so it's www.browserleaks.com slash canvas and if it does nothing without scripting on but now scroll down and you will see that you it has found your fingerprint see that green checkbox up a little uh, back up a little ways right? Kind of there in the middle, right where that, yeah, there. So, so what this did was it just fingerprinted your browser using Canvas. And Is this any different it, from what we talked about, I don't know, two years ago, this kind of... No, actually, we, we did talk about this two yeah. years ago. It suddenly bubbled back up yeah. with these inflammatory headlines. Just like Gizmodo. But, they made a big deal about it. And boy, genius the, report. The, the unstoppable yeah. tracking yeah. technology. But we've known about... Anyway, we've talked about this for years. So, but the reason I wanted to come back to it again was to correct the record. If you look there, it says 1,847 unique signatures not 64. So last week, the, 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 in, in the research report from the guys that, in, that found this and developed the technology, in their analysis, they found it was less than six bits worth of 
of of identification from that. But they had a relatively small sample size. Browserleaks.com has been there looking at all visitors for a long time. It just it's looked at me, it's now it's looked at you, and it's looked at everybody else who's gone there. And 1847 is the number. And that's uh, that's about 10.85 effective binary bits or a little less than 11 bits. So that's certainly which is to say that any that any of this technology running on anyone's browser that has scripting enabled and I forgot to h- highlight that last week this is all client side and it's done by someone injecting some javascript in, onto the page that your browser dutifully renders and then it sucks that off makes a hash and sends it back to you know the tracking mothership but I just wanted to say that it, it turns out it's not you're not um, put into one of 64 or something bins. It's 1,847. So that's substantially better. But on the other hand, that's certainly not identifying you on the Internet. And so this still is, you know, far from being unique. It's it's one more one more thing that can be used but it does require scripting, unlike cookies, for example, that's part of the underlying plumbing of web browsing. This is script-based hack, um, and so users have a little more control over it. And Oh, and, and I also found out that a lot of people are already blocking that site, the one, uh, I can't remember, it's all something that I mentioned last week that's like the, the king of the injecting of Canvas uh, everybody, you know, knows about it and has been blocking it for a while. So, yes, this has been around. And as you said, Leo, you know, uh, Gizmodo got headlines and upset everybody. What a surprise. Yeah, it was yeah. funny, too. I saw I did, it didn't make Link's it into the Q&A. Gawker. What a shock. <laughs> it didn't make it into the Q&A. But somebody along the same lines was commenting how his his sister was going, I think, to China for a few weeks uh, sort of to be a missionary and left her laptop home at some inconvenience to her because of that horrible reporting that was done during the Olympics in Russia. Remember where, and we talked about this on the show, that the, the, uh, the, the claim was that within minutes of crossing the border, hackers had taken over all of your electronic devices and as we know it, you know it was just a, it was a horrible story uh meaning that it was contrived and in, in fact you know in order to have your android phone taken over i, I may they may have even jailbroken the phone and installed or turned off things or installed malware or something i don't remember the details but the point was it so scared people that it's mo- it's changed their behavior unnecessarily frightening them from the conveniences that they would otherwise enjoy. Um, On the other hand, you know, she probably did did take her smartphone, even if she left her laptop behind. um, And arguably that's as vulnerable as a laptop, if not, you know, more so. Great news from Open Whisper Systems. Whisper Systems we've talked about for years. This was the company that Moxie Marlinspike founded 
um, which we also reported was acquired by Twitter uh, toward the end of 2011. Uh, and shortly after that, their first product, which was Android only, that red phone, was, was essentially the red phone service was disconnected uh, after Twitter's acquisition. But then uh, it was released as free open source and became available again. Um, what's then happened is that the so-called open Whisper Systems project, which sort of has continued to live as a free and open source project, has continued to develop this technology, all free, all open source. And I think it was this morning. I think this is very fresh news. They just announced the release of Signal, which is their uh, free uh, encrypted voice system for I for the, for the iPhone. Um, so uh, what what they said in their blog was secure calls are just the beginning. Signal will be a unified private voice and text communication platform for iPhone, Android, and the browser. Later this summer, Signal for iPhone, which is now available and a free download and also open source and beautifully designed, will and based on on well-proven, robust security protocols, Signal for iPhone will be expanded to support text communication compatible with Text Secure for Android. Shortly after, both Text Secure and Redphone for Android will be combined into a unified Signal app on Android as well. Simultaneously, browser extension development is already underway. And I forgot to mention that Signal on the iPhone is compatible right now with Redphone on Android. So we now have the two premier um, phone platforms supported by essentially a single cross-platform, truly secure um, voice communication system. And they'll be adding text to Signal, which will be also compatible with Text Secure, and then they'll essentially be be merging Text Secure and Red Phone on the Android platform under the Signal name. So, so in a few months, there should just be Signal for both iPhone and the Android platform, uh, and the price is right; it's free. So, any, for so for anybody who has, first of all, Red Phone has been Android only until now. Um, now it's now available for the iPhone in, in the form of Signal. Um, uh, and later they'll be sort of formally amalgamating them. So that's good, that's good news for anybody who wants, you know, absolute security. They've, I, I spent enough time with it to look at it and see that they really did things right. Um, so I'm, I'm really pleased that they now have uh, the iPhone platform as well. And there was just the announcement of a, a sort of a troubling vulnerability, although it was responsibly disclosed, uh, which means that Google knows about it and has 
already patched the problem and scanned uh, the, the, the Play Store to make sure that nobody's taking advantage of it. This is a presentation that will be made at next week's Black Hat conference. And uh, the press has picked it up. And so it's in the headlines today because that's another thing that just happened. And this it's being called the fake ID vulnerability. Uh, that's the name that was given by Blue Box Security. Uh, and Jeff Forrestal is the, is the chief technology officer of, of Blue Box, who will be giving the presentation at next week's Black Hat conference. Um, what, and again, Dan Gooden and Ars Technica uh, reported this immediately uh, with the headlines that said, Android fake ID vulnerability lets malware impersonate trusted applications, puts all Android users since January 2010 at risk. Um, and then there's just the first couple lines or the first one line of his of his report said he wrote the majority of devices running Google's Android operating system are susceptible to hacks that allow malicious apps to bypass a key security sandbox so they can steal user credentials, read email and access payment histories and other sensitive data researchers have warned. Okay, so here's what happened. Um, Apparently... Something broke with, uh, and this was with the version 2.1 of Android, which was released in January of 2010. And what happened was somewhere along the way, certificate chain verification was broken in Android. Now, this is different than revocation, which never existed in Android, still doesn't. But... The idea with a chain, and we've talked about this often. I mean, the whole point of a of a of a security certificate chain is that you have a a trusted root, and it signs another certificate, which may sign another certificate, and so forth, until you get to sort of the client certificate. And the point is that 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 certificate. It asserts its signer, and and we hope that that assertion is verified. It turns out, for the last four and a half years, Android has not been checking the signatures on the certificates, and nobody noticed. So, what this the reason this is important is that there are privileged applications in Android which which are trusted to bypass the application sandbox. For example, Adobe's Flash is allowed to act as a plug-in for any other application installed on Android devices, presumably to allow it to provide animation and graphics services to them, <laughs> you, know, you know, we know how that works. Um, or, for example, uh, Google's wallet has privilege to access the NFC hardware, un- which normal apps can't, because you you need to you need to be trusted in order to do that. So, Flash has a certificate 
which is signed, which allows Android to trust Flash. And, and by the way, that certificate is, is unique to Flash. And the fact that Flash is carrying it with that, you know, is, is carrying that signed certificate is recognized by Android and gives Flash extra privileges that other apps don't have. Similarly, there is a certificate specifically for Google Wallet, which, which allows it to have access to the NFC hardware. Well, it turns out no one is checking to see whether those certs are actually validly signed. So anyone can spoof those. Any malware can simply, can, can simply carry those certificates. And for example, if it carried a, a flash certificate, even though the signature was invalid because it, has, it, couldn't, get its, it couldn't get that, that certificate signed by, by an actual authority, if Android doesn't check the signature, then it doesn't matter. So it turns out that this has been true for four and a half years. Um, so uh, uh, in talking to uh, the press, Jeff Forrestal, the, the CTO of Bluetooth, of Blue Box Security, sorry, said all it takes is for an end user to choose to install a fake app and it's pretty much game over. The Trojan horse payload with, with, um, will immediately escape the sandbox and start doing what evil things it feels like. For instance, stealing personal data or, of course, you know, observing everything that the user is doing. So Google, Google responded and said, we appreciate Blue Box responsibly reporting this vulnerability to us. Third-party research is one of the ways Android is, make strong, is made stronger for users. After receiving word of this vulnerability, we quickly issued a patch that was distributed to Android partners as well as to AOSP. And I didn't look up that acronym. You know what that is, Leo? Android AO- Open Source Project. It's, ah, perfect. So it, it means more than that. It means the manufacturers of... Google-approved Android devices, any of the Android devices that have the Play Store on it are AOSP handsets. Good. Um, and then... Uh, j- Actually, j- wait a minute. Finishing- nope. Take it, take it away. Maybe be wrong. Oh. I think AOSP is the opposite. It's the Android... <laughs> it's the <laughs> Android Open Handset Alliance. That- oh, it's so confusing. Anyway, it's the other Android folks. Well, you got the acronym right. I know the acronym. Even, even though but the acronym doesn't tell are. you exactly what it is because <laughs> Google's obfuscating it. <laughs> So, uh, and then Google said, Google Play and Verify Apps have, all, has, have also been enhanced to protect users from this issue. At this time, we have scanned all applications submitted to Google Play as well as those Google has reviewed from outside of Google Play, and we have seen no evidence of attempted exploitation of this vulnerability. Yeah, and so, so the good- if they gave it to OEMs, that's the Handset Alliance people, and then giving it to AOSP means they put it on the open source uh, servers so that people who make non-official Google uh, Android devices can also patch it. 
Oh, how so everybody, cool. in other words, who's using Android, AOSP. Is so the there, there is a stuff. Google bug. It's been given the Google bug, one three six seven, eight four eight four, and Blue Box Security has put a scanner up in the Google Play Store. Uh, I imagine you can find it. it it's uh, just uh, I've got the link in the show notes, but it's uh, Blue Box Security Scanner. And it will scan your machine for uh, to verify that it has been patched for this problem. Uh, and the good news is this is – it's not like one of those things where the application – uh, malware could be hiding some behavior, which, for example it, – yep, there it is on the screen. Uh, and it, it's a free download. Uh, so anyone who's interested or curious or worried, a blue box security scanner in the Google Play Store. Um, but the point is this is easy to scan for because it's a security certificate that the application has to have and has to present in order to get these privileges. So it's simply a matter of Google running through, you know, like knowing this is a problem and running through all the apps to verify affirmatively the signatures on all of the certs that they carry so just to um, be clear you don't need this to fix your problem this is just to see if you ever got bit uh actually i I think it i think it from the notes it says that it checks to verify you that you are no longer vulnerable that is that that your your android device has been patched through the patching process. I think it's also highly likely that see Google has its own scanner which they keep up to date on Android and it's highly likely they fixed that as well at the same time. So that scanner goes through every app you download and checks for known mal you know, vulnerabilities. So I imagine Is that the, is that the verify apps that they talk yeah, about? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And that they update yes. that easily. So I my suspicion is you you've got that already. So yeah, I don't and know. verify apps they said has been enhanced. Yeah. See the blue people Blue Box is a business. This is a product. They don't charge you for it, but they they would, would like to get it. It's like Lookout. They would like to get it on your system. Yeah. 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 Now checks for the fake ID vulnerability, but it's always been checking for other things as well. Well, you know, it, it's I, I was thinking about this. I mean, it's it's it, it's good that they found this and I think it'll make an interesting presentation, but and and they did the right thing by disclosing responsibly the the sad thing is that you know it sort of takes the teeth out of their whole presentation that you know it's like well we found this and it's been fixed so nobody has to you know <laughs> nobody has to worry about it uh well, now you know why bad. people hold on to these and don't tell google or apple yeah <laughs> yeah but this, they did the right thing please do the right thing yes even they if did. it takes and, the teeth out of your presentation yeah, well, because the problem is this one in particular is so bad that if this were, for example, a zero-day, dis- you know, discovery, they would be really bad. If we if we found it being used rather than them them discovering the problem, um, that would be a whole different deal because it would just you know take time to get, to push out the change and get everybody to respond, and there would be people hurt in the meantime. This way, nobody was hurt. But it's you know a lot less, <laughs> a, lot, a lot less exciting. Uh, sometimes that's a good thing. Um, okay, speaking of exciting, or or maybe not, I'm not sure. Um, we have what, the final volley. 
in this pretty much ridiculous back and forth between Verizon and Level 3. But, and, and so I want I to discuss it for two reasons. First of all, additional information about the way they feel about these, it, this issue, the peering bandwidth issue, comes out in this, and we get a conclusion. So now we're back to, last week we talked about Level 3's response um, to Verizon's first volley. And so now we have David Young again from Verizon responding to Level 3's response from last week. Uh, and so, and he has, he makes some good points, I think. Uh, you know, I'm not taking sides. I'm interested in sort of the technology still and understanding, like, how they're thinking about this. So David Young's, uh, this was uh, his posting from Verizon, uh, called it Level 3's Selective Amnesia on Peering. And what's interesting about this, and, and we'll get there in a second, is you and I, Leo, talked about the Level 3 cogent problem, and it affected me because my T1s are on cogent bandwidth and GRCs famously, and there I said the word only once, uh, in the the level three data center. So I was cut off from my own servers when they had that peering battle. Um, wow. Anyway, so and and you you may remember if it was a few years ago, oh, I yeah, couldn't yeah, get I, do, yeah. I couldn't get to GRC because Cogent and Level Three were fighting. So. Uh, David Young writes, last week, Level 3 decided to call attention to their, okay, now, again, the wording of, is, of course, loaded, call attention to their congested links. It's not our congested links. It's Level 3's congested links, even though they, you know, just interconnect each other's routers. So I'm not sure why it's level three's links that are congested. It seems yeah, to me it's, it's like when you when your wife says your son <laughs> is in trouble again. Uh, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so level three decided to call attention, mm. and actually, no, I would argue that Verizon called attention. Yeah, who to started it. this? <laughs> in that you know, with, 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 with as you keep pointing out, the bright red, you know, die, you know, the bright red, the only part of the, of the of the network diagram that was read in Verizon's original posting, you know, as you properly note. So call attention to their congested links into Verizon's network. Okay, so that's important, as we'll see in a minute. So he's saying level three's congested links into Verizon's network. Unlike other content delivery networks, which pay for connections into ISP networks to ensure they have adequate capacity to deliver the content they have been hired to deliver. And again, remember, this is certainly partisan. Level 3 insists on only using its existing settlement-free peering links even though 
as Level 3 surprisingly admits in their blog, these links are experiencing significant congestion. Level 3's solution? Rather than buy the capacity they need, Level 3 insists that Verizon should add capacity to the existing peering link for additional downstream traffic, even though the traffic is already wildly out of balance. So there again, we get this, you know, all of this seems is like it's as if Verizon's saying this is lev- these are level threes links because they are by the, they're, 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 they're in this data flowing into Verizon's network. And then we also get this notion that from Verizon's viewpoint, a con- what a content delivery network pays ISPs to do is to accept their bandwidth to ensure, as, as David writes, they have adequate capacity to deliver the content they've been hired to do to deliver. So, and this notion of wildly out of balance, which I was, I've been talking about as we've been looking at this. So continuing, David says, Level 3 has been on the other end of these peering disputes in the past, which we know is true. In 2005, they found that Cogent was in violation of their peering agreement. Explaining the situation in a press release describing the dispute, and he provides the link, They Level 3 said... Free peering, also referred to as settlement-free peering, is a contractual relationship under which two companies, and this is is Level 3 in 2005, referring to their dispute with Cogent, under which two companies exchange Internet traffic without charging each other. In order for for free peering to be fair to both parties, the cost and benefit that parties contribute and receive should be roughly the same. For example, Cogent was sending, and this was, so that means this is this was posted after Level 3 broke the links, essentially cut off the peering relationship. For, for example, Cogent was sending far more traffic into the Level 3 network then level three was sending into Cogent's network. It is important to keep in mind that traffic received by level three in a peering relationship must be moved across level three's network at considerable expense. Simply put, this means that without paying, Cogent was using far more of Level 3's network, far more of the time, than the reverse. Following our review, we decided that it was unfair for us, says Level 3, to be subsidizing Cogent's business. Um, And then uh, David says, Level 3 informed Cogent that they would be terminating their peering agreement unless Cogent made alternative arrangements. And then back to Level 3 statement at the time, we then contacted Cogent senior management to offer to discuss alternative commercial terms to allow a continued exchange of traffic. Cogent refused. 
Um, so then David says, level three, put the onus squarely on Cogent for failing to make alternative paid arrangements for the benefit of customers to handle the unbalanced traffic as other firms had. And then back to level three, those firms chose to enter into agreements either with level three or others to obtain the appropriate connectivity and free the in- and, and keep the interests of their customers paramount. And then uh, David writes, summing up their position, level three said, and then finished, and this is the last level three statement, to be lasting, business relationships should be mutually beneficial. In cases where the benefit we receive is in line with the benefit we deliver, we will exchange traffic on a settlement-free basis. Contrary to Cogent's public statements, reasonable, balanced, and mutually beneficial agreements for the exchange of traffic do not represent a threat to the Internet. They don't represent a threat to anyone other than those trying to get a free ride on someone else's network. And then finishing, David says, so what has changed for level three? Unfortunately, they are now the one, quote, trying to get a free ride on someone else's network and failing to, quote, keep the interest of their customers paramount. And finally, David's at Verizon says, fortunately, Verizon and Netflix have found a way to avoid the congestion problems that Level 3 is creating by its refusal to find, quote, alternative commercial terms. We're working diligently on directly connecting Netflix content servers into Verizon's network so that we can both keep the interests of our mutual customers paramount. So anyway, some additional, so there's some in, some intriguing ideas here. That is that, that the way the, these top tier providers feel is incoming traffic is a burden that, that they're carrying on behalf of their, their peering partner. And, and uh, as I said, I've experienced this myself when I was setting up my servers uh, in Level 3's data center. They wanted to know what the, my own, just my own little piddling relate, you know, ratio of incoming to outgoing traffic was. Because, of course, it all adds up. If, if everyone that they were hosting were like, was only serving and not receiving, then the, the, there would be an imbalance created by that data center, um, you know, to some degree before it has a chance to, to get diffused. So, uh, you know, I think there, there's validity to this. Um, I don't think these people have conducted themselves, you know, very well, just, you know, yapping at each other publicly. But I, I think, you know, as I hoped we would, we learned something about, you know, the way these relationships operate at the high end. And I got a better sense for what I was looking for, which was, you know, what what is this about balance? Why is that important? And and this explains it. Um. I got an interesting piece of feedback from GRC's uh, HTTP 
S fingerprinting page. Everyone will remember uh, I brought I I pulled that system together, uh, brought it online. I don't know now, maybe six or more, maybe more 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 like a year ago, because uh, I it was certainly before I started working on Squirrel, <laughs> and that's been going for a while. Anyway, a G Evans. Uh, used the fingerprinting feedback page to say in your paragraph about machine resident interception, meaning client side interception, you can add a vast antivirus to the list. There is an innocuous settings checkbox that says scan secure connections with no other explanation. Sounds like a good idea. Until I read your fingerprints page in Firefox and noticed the lack of a green label in the address bar for GRC. When I hovered over the lock symbol, it said verified by Avast as opposed to verified by Digicert. Oops. I immediately turned off that option in Avast and now it's back to normal. So I'm not sure that's a problem. Um, it requires that you trust Avast, but what that essentially what that means is that when you inst- when, when when this G Evans or presumably anybody installs Avast, it's also putting its certificate in your, and I assume this is on a Windows machine in the in the OS's root store so that so that your browser will trust certificates that it signs and then that's kind of not you, good behavior i know i and and this is what but the problem is without doing that the antivirus system can't scan your uh your traffic it would it would have to do it after the traffic were decrypted, um, and there's probably not a good way to get a shim in there. Um, so, so what it's doing well, is you can always do when, the man in the middle. Well, it is. It's a man <laughs> in the middle attack. Yeah. I mean, it, that's what it is. And of course, the problem is if somebody got their certificate, uh, or or actually, if somebody, let's see how this would work. If somebody if somebody reverse engineered a vast and yeah, pulled I mean you're the trusting a vast basically. Yeah, yeah, but my point is, uh, I have to think this through. But I think that means anybody, anybody could get a hold of a, a bad guy could get a vast and extract the certificate from it, um, and. If they know, if they knew uh, you were using a vast, then they could move the man in the middle outside of your machine. I don't see anything preventing them from doing that. Oh, that's not good. Um, no, that's that's scary, actually, um, because what a vast is doing is there when you're, for example, when 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 he went to GRC, GRC's certificate was sent to a vast and. Avast minted their own fake GRC.com certificate and signed it um, 
and and then sent it on to the browser. So the browser thought it was connecting to GRC with a secure connection when in fact there you had a man in the middle attack, well a man in the middle presence, not an attack in this case, uh, and you weren't actually getting my certificate from Digicert. You were getting a vast certificate that that was a, that a, that was a like a, a fake GRC.com certificate. That should they always just, be a red flag. That's terrible. Just yeah. And so do other antiviruses do this, or security programs do this? Yeah, I've heard of it. Uh, I've heard of others doing it. Mm. Uh, we know that appliances do it. And now here's an instance of of uh, a vast doing it. I'm trying to think of the other one. Does McAfee do uh, it? I don't think so. I'm kind. I'm wondering if Kaspersky does it hmm. i think maybe it's the one that does it hmm. uh but you know we trust the russians so <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> why not yeah that's right okay now leo uh the other day uh, we're now in mis- miscellany i've got three things to talk about uh you you i saw you guys running the whole building the brick house uh, at high speed, yeah. Uh, I thought it was yeah. Three was years so ago, neat. John made a great time lapse of that. Had the foresight. He did. Yeah. Now, okay, but at one point toward the end, everybody is moving around like you know, like their hair's on fire, <laughs> and and the tables changed the, shape. <laughs> oh, it was wonderful. It's a and, party. And we the, had a party, and the 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 control booth appeared, then it disappeared, then it came back, then it disappeared, yeah, yeah. then it spun around, and then it yeah. disappeared, and it yeah. came back, and it was you know. <laughs> anyway, it's it's hard to stop watching it. It's mesmerizing, <laughs> but you know, it was just you know, it looked like a science fiction movie because I mean, it's so cool. buzzing around. But at one point, the camera position. Slow was slowly moving. Mm. I don't mean it was rotating. No, I it know was, what you're talking about. It was about. moving to side. How mm. did you do that? It's, it's a special because- proprietary trick. No, it's called a slider. So they have a like an I beam with yeah. a uh, special, very, very, very slow platform with a, that moves. With a clockwork with clockwork, a clockwork exactly. motion, and you put your camera on that. It's designed for time lapses because obviously it has to move extremely slowly. Right. So it and moves. That's what, that's what yeah. puzzled me is yeah. it was smooth, <laughs> but I thought, wait a minute. It had someone like, I didn't know if you were like going up, you know, like stop frame animation and somebody was moving it, but it didn't look like that. It was really smooth. Yeah. And, but for it to be done in time lapse, okay, there it is. Yep. In fact, there. if you uh, watch House of Cards, you, you watch House of Cards. All the trouble of. Oh, oh yeah. of course. Okay, watch the beginning of House of Cards next time you watch the show because they have a wonderful title sequence, which is all time lapses of Washington D.C. and yes, many of yes, them are yes. done with a slider. So the the the, ah. the slowly move uh, as the time lapse is going. It's a wonderful effect, and yeah, if you're not paying attention, it just looks really cool. And obviously, most people don't because you saw that you've seen that House of Cards opening many times. But you know them. It's like, well, of course, well, okay. But you guys, hey, you know, we, I mean, we the, got, no. we got, we're nope. quit. <laughs> <laughs> no credit to John Slanina, uh, Jammerby, because he did a great job. He had the foresight 
to know that we would want that. What you'll also notice is the camera moves a little bit because uh, the day, because we boarded it up at one point. Did you I, notice well, that? I saw like a yeah, it's a, 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 a you know like some construction guy put a big you know a steel I beam right in front of it. I was like, whoops. Well, we where we put it eventually a wall was going to go. So uh -huh. you see it, and you see the wall come in front of it, and then you have to. We had to move the camera to get around that. Is this available online? For John, did you put? Have you ever put that online, John? Here, let me let me get John's. Uh, you did you ever put that online? We probably have it on inside.twit.tv somewhere. Huh? Yeah, give me a link. <laughs> All right, yeah. so he's gonna. So yeah, it's probably on our blog inside.twit.tv. But I, you know, I just was there looking for it, and I didn't see it. It's maybe very deep. It's been three years, after all. Um, and For what it's worth, it's absolutely fun. The, the, this thing starts with an empty room that doesn't look anything like, well, it doesn't look like anything. And, you know, you see them zooming around at, you know, at Warp 10 building this. Uh, Is it on YouTube? And, uh, oh, it's on YouTube. And, uh, it's got great music. It's got a nice soundtrack. I mean, somebody, it was really well put together. And and then there was also it switched to a time lapse in your office, and we see your office being built with you know the the beautiful wooden cabinetry and everything. Yeah, I can't believe uh, three years later and a million and a half dollars later. If you go to YouTube and search for, uh, I'm told, Twit time lapse, you will find it. Uh, yeah, there it is. Studio upgrade time lapse. Only twenty one. Which one? This one? No, no, that's the old one. Uh, so there's a studio upgrade. That's when we put in the new lighting ring in the cottage. The one you want is the Twit, Twit Brickhouse time lapse. And for some reason, I'm in a Santa Claus outfit at the, at the, at the beginning. Is that the one, John? Am I in the wrong? Oh, this is me introducing it uh, for some reason, again, in a Santa Claus outfit with a uh, fake fireplace where you're sitting uh, right now, Steve. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, you can see the... Why, why talk a long time, don't I? There we At go. At 1 p.m. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It yep. was, It was. So, you know, when we came in here, this was a uh, empty, uh, it was an old uh, old furniture factory. It was a drugstore for 60 years. A, sound, a software company's in here for a little bit. Uh, we tore out uh, the walls uh, of the cubicles, put glass in because they were, you know, not glassed in. My office is glassed in. And you can see the whole process. Yeah, it's pretty fun. You can also see yeah, the day pass because... <laughs> yes, as the sun is setting, the it, you, you, yeah. you see it coming through the window. Yeah. Yep. Oh, he cuts out the Oop. night uh, the night stuff because nothing happens all night long. But uh, very nice. You can see the sunset. We're the, you're looking from the west, so that's exactly what you're seeing is as the sun comes down. It's pretty cool. Yep. That's some. Yeah, very. Cool. I'm very proud of this. This this was an amazing uh, project. And uh, there you go. It's working. Uh, I heard you mention Lucy uh, on MacBreak. Yeah, Weekly. did you see it? I, Absolutely. Did you hate it? Yeah, I, 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 I was. I didn't love it as much as I hoped I would. But I, I, I was wondering about three quarters of the way through what they could do because what it was just so ambitious. That is, in terms of like where this was headed. It was like what what is the trajectory going to take them on? Uh, I, I, I like action and I like you know kick ass attractive girls <laughs> you know and, and it's uh, yeah I, I i i did enjoy it i i think for anyone who thinks they would like it they would probably love it and if you're not sure then you know 
Maybe wait till Guardians of the Galaxy, which opens this Friday. Yeah, I was surprised how poorly reviewed it was. I'm a fan of the director, though. He did uh, yes. La Luke Femme Beeson. Nikita, Luc Besson, and uh, The Fifth Element, yeah. which is one of my favorite movies. And I've interviewed yes. him many years ago uh, when he was first starting out. He's a French director, and he's, I think, super talented. Um, yeah, I no, I, I, I really, I love the Asian super bad guys, and uh, you know, I, I like that genre of movie. So uh, I, I thought it was fun. It's kind of BS because I don't think that whole thing about we only use you know ten percent of our brain is really true. And but still, it's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now final bit of miscellaneous. Um, I, I wanted to put on people's radar a forthcoming. And very exciting next generation memory technology. We, of course, have hard drives that we've talked about. We've got static RAM, which is very fast, but has a, a density limitation because each bit has at least two transistors. Uh, you can think of them as inverters that are connected to each other. If you think about an inverter uh, that is a, something where a one comes in and a zero goes out or a zero goes in and a one comes out, if you connect that to another inverter and then connect the output of the second inverter back to the input of the first, it's stable. That is, huh. the first one puts out a zero, which makes the second one put out a one, which goes around to the input of the first one that makes it put out a zero. So, and if you did something like to force the, uh, the, that to change, like you, you forced the, the input that was a one going into the first one down to zero, then that, that first inverter puts out a zero, causing the second inverter to put out a one and like keeps it in that mode. So, so it's called a flip-flop. Two inverters back to back, you know, connected to each other is a is a flip flop. So, static RAM is just that. It's a, a huge array of those. The problem is, each cell takes up a lot of space because it requires that. So, dynamic RAM is simpler. It's just essentially a capacitor, and um, and the idea the the problem with it is that that the charge on the capacitor bleeds off, which is why dynamic RAM needs to be refreshed. The refreshing is a, is a scanning through the entire contents of the RAM to read the cells before they have fully lost their charge to recharge the ones that were draining. And, and the advantage of, of dynamic RAM is the cell is... Although it's, it requires refreshing, it's much smaller than a static RAM. And that means you, the, the dynamic RAM can be much denser. But both the flip-flops connected to each other and the leaky capacitor, dynamic RAM, they're volatile. You turn the computer off and they lose their charge. Now, we've talked about the surprising non-volatility of dynamic RAM. Remember all of the freezing, the, the DRAM with, with like, you know, Freon and then quickly taking the, them out and putting them into a different machine. And it turns out that if you make them really cold, you slow down the decay rate enough that they can 
they, that they will hold their charge long enough to get moved into a different machine and so forth. So, um, so that. Now we have non-volatile. Uh, and, of course, that's a often uh, mentioned topic because it turns out that, you know, uh, uh, the density has been increasing. And I've been talking about the technology of non-volatile RAM, essentially how it uses a, a transistor with a floating gate where the gate is, is, is separated by an insulator and charge is driven through the insulator and stranded out on that gate, but that allows that transistor's state to be read. So that's what all of our current non-volatile solid-state memory is. The new technology, and this is something that popped up on my radar a couple of years ago when HP announced they were seeing breakthroughs in it. It is that's HP calls theirs a memristor, and the other term is RAM, as opposed to, for example, is DRAM as dynamic RAM. RAM is resistive RAM, and there have just been some new announcements of breakthroughs in that, which are very exciting. the The idea is that. This this uses the migration of of I think I read silver ions um, through a through a essentially a crossbar. Imagine vertical uh, conductive strips on one side, horizontal con- conductive strips on the other to create a grid, and the intersections are the bit cells. And, and essentially, you can, you can cause the interconnecting resistance to change, and it stays changed. So it is non-volatile because you have to do something to it, basically drive a current through it in order to force this migration. And once you do, you permanently change the resistance at the intersection. The reason this is exciting is it is a two-terminal solution. Unlike any of the transistorized solutions, which are large, this makes this very dense. And it turns out it is very high performance and has extreme endurance. So, for example, in terms of what we're actually, what they're actually making in the lab now, Current flash technology that we have allows about 16 gigabytes to fit on a 200 millimeter square chip. So 200 square millimeters can hold 16 gig of current flash technology using resistive RAM, which is working in the lab. They can put a terabyte in the same space as 16 gigs. So this is shockingly more dense. Um, cross, one company is crossbar-inc.com, or just crossbar is the company name. But if anyone wants to look, www.crossbar-inc.com 
so named because that's the architecture of this. Oh, and the other thing is, not only is this um, technology super dense, but it 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 is it lends itself to 3D. That is three uh, stacking of layers. Um, so so you can just keep building these crossbars back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and stack them. And in fact, you can build this on top of existing integrated circuits. So for example, you could take a a uh, a complex uh, chip like a processor and have all of its real estate there doing its stuff, and then on top of it lay an, another layer of non-volatile RAM that then interconnects to it in order to create sort of a sandwich. So quoting from Crossbar's page, they said, with 20 times higher performance and 20 times lower power than NAND, which is the, the technology of Flash, and 10 times the endurance at half the die size, Crossbar has shattered traditional technology barriers uh, for the NOR and NAND style embedded memory applications and will enable a new wave of electronics innovation for and blah, 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 you know, PR stuff. But the, but the technology looks real. HP expected to have it last year and, I mean, like to be commercializing it, but they haven't been heard from for a while. So maybe they're having problems with, you know, yield and so forth. You know, moving this from the lab into commercial production is always challenging you know we saw that for example with the when we were talking about the supercapacitors that you know we were you know hoping we would have by now and somehow that seems to have gone on the back burner but uh we may be looking at a at some serious increase uh in in solid state uh ram performance awesome and the and the good news is spin right will still be useful which is you know why I'm so encouraged. All I will say this week about Spinrite, although I think maybe someone mentions it in the Q and A, I'm not sure. Uh, there are we do talks about Squirrel a little bit there. Is yesterday at 5:21 in the in the afternoon, uh, tweeting from Tweetbot for iOS, which is my favorite client. Also, someone named Ron Tyska just tweeted. He said at SGGRC, Spinrite revived a completely dead SSD saved me $400. Thanks. Uh, so, you know, it is really, it is the, the fact that people, our own customers, begin began repairing and reviving SSDs with Spinrite that really got me motivated and reinterested in giving it a future because I was a little depressed here as, you know, the world seemed to be going solid state uh, and it, you know, continues to seem to be doing that despite the fact that hard drives have, of course, also continued to amaze us with how inexpensive they're able to to create high-end, you know, mass storage. Uh, but it's clear that that the 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 nature of the economics is such is is always going to be that these devices will be operating on the edge of reliability they will be reliable enough that they you know they do their job for a few years and and then begin to die in some way and the good news is spinrite will be there uh, and and be able to pull them back. 
Uh, and the other thing I, I noted was in, in reading through other people's comments that I don't bother sharing, something I've never said, but I, I realized the truth of it is anything Spinright can fix, it would have prevented. And I think that's absolutely true. Anything it can fix, it would have prevented, which is a way of thinking about it from a preventative maintenance standpoint. Lots of people use it after it's pulled them back from the grave and they understand what it does. But if it had ever been used before the drive got into that shape, that would have never gotten into that shape. Hmm. So that's an interesting way of, of yeah, phrasing kind of cool. And that's why it's the world's best disc recovery <laughs> and maintenance utility. Right. Questions and preventative. And preventative. preventative. Yes. Right. Questions are ready for you, Steve. Are you ready for questions? Let's do it. Let's do it. Starting with Adam P. He says, how do they do it? You praise Spider Oak. We should refer people back to that episode of Security Now where you talk about all the different, or not all, but many different cloud storage solutions. And uh, you did say, in fact, that your favorite was Spider Oak because it's trust no one. They never have access to a user's private keys. Well, I'm wondering where you got that information. According to the Spider Oak Q&A page, FAQ page, uh, if your hard drive crashes, you only need your password to get your data back. Doesn't that mean they have to be storing your private key on their server? And by the way, this makes their zero-knowledge claim complete bunk. Okay, so I, this was interesting for a couple reasons. First of all, um, recently Edward Snowden uh, disparaged Dropbox, which doesn't offer TNO security, and he specifically mentioned Spider Oak as like what he would use yeah. because of their uh, of their TNO as, operation. As did you, which makes me think Edward Snowden listens to security now. So hi, Eddie. Well, I, I've been impressed by his technical knowledge. Yeah, I mean, he, he does stuff. he he really does know this stuff. Yeah. Um, so, so I wanted to explain this to Adam and our listeners. Um, it is absolutely the case that you must use a strong password, but your password can be used as the sole um, decryptor of a private key. Um, you, you don't want to use your password directly as the key because then you could never change your password. So instead, your password is used to generate the key which then encrypts the actual key. But all of that can be done on your computer. And the encrypted data that whatever cloud provider has can be brought can be brought to you then you use your password to to generate a key which then decrypts the encrypted key which is used in turn to decrypt the contents however as i said the quality of the password is what matters. So, and this is the same technology, for example, that TrueCrypt or other uh, properly designed har uh, hard drive encryption tools use, where, again, 
you absolutely you, you need a good source of entropy to create the original key. Then you need the user to create a password that will not succumb to brute to brute force attack. Um, and brute force attack needs to be thwarted by by, for example, running it through a ho- hopefully a memory hard and, and in, or, in order to get time hard p- password based key derivation function PBKDF, which then turns the password into the key which de- decrypts and encrypts the actual encryption key for the data. So that technology, the good news is all of this is readily available. I'm using it in Squirrel. Uh, anyone who's doing TNO by definition is doing some version of this. Maybe they're using, there are variations, for example, th- that use public key technology. Everything I just described is only symmetric key uh, and maybe some hashing uh, in but there. PGP in order to is do public it. key and uses a similar technique, does it not? Yeah, well, yeah, there are many different configurations. Yeah. Um, the, the one player that, uh, that oh, and I, I should also mention, Leo, that um, uh, when you were taking a break, I announced that I was going to make time to go back and revisit the whole cloud storage deal because of the, the incredible drop in cost, the in, you know the availability of higher bandwidth. You know, we 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 did the cloud storage uh, podcast years ago, and it's time for an update. So I, I mentioned that. Then in the second week, um, some of our listeners had found. I knew that there was a that there was a a, a encryption a, like a drive encryption Wikipedia page. It turns out there is a cloud provider Wikipedia page, and so what I had intended to do originally was create a public spreadsheet where I would put everything that I found about all these providers. It turns out it's largely there. But but what I want to do is is to focus on on the the idea of using a a like a a, a, a TNO on a client on the on the user's end and sort of any provider that that you want to use uh, to store your data, so I'm still going to do that. Um, but I just I'd want to mention um, Boxcryptor. Um, they're also TNO, and I've been just doing some preliminary poking around, and they really look good. I, I need to get some experience with them, but and they they have a Boxcryptor Classic, which is it does not use a a a licensing model. I'm not a big fan of, you know, rented software. I want to just buy it and own it uh, and not have to like pay them annually for the privilege. Their newer product is, uh, is, has additional features and is only available in an annual payment basis. The, but they still offer with the same technology, the classic version, which I like because it's a give them money once and then you own it. Uh, and it is it is really worth looking at. So anyway, we will be coming back to this, uh, as I had promised, with a little different take, though, because now I've found out that, you know, 
other people have done a phenomenally comprehensive job of putting on a grid all of the cloud storage providers and like breaking them down uh, uh, in a very useful fashion. I've been really happy with the file transporter, which is not really cloud. You make your own cloud. You have a, a local hard drive, which you uh, sync with. Um, and I have one here and one at the office. And it's using uh, strong encryption on the hard drive and SSL for transport to the hard drive. And then the two home and office sync. So yes. I, I, it works, I think, really nicely for me. And at no point does the company have access to my data. I mean, as long as yep. they haven't put a back door in there. Um, so I get the benefit of a cloud storage solution with, with nothing stored uh, on the Internet. It's all stored here. And is it a little, it's a little appliance? Yeah, it's the cute, cutest little thing. I think I've seen a picture of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have I have one that's just looks like a little. It's hard to describe. I could show sort you. of a little pagoda kind yeah, of. Yeah. Exactly. It? It's a little pagoda <laughs> thing. And then I have another one. Most recently, they've started making a ninety nine dollar dongle that you attach your own USB drive to. Nice. Um, and that works great. And so there's no monthly fee. There's no actual cloud storage. You're your own cloud. Um, I just I this to me has worked really well, and because I could put three terabytes on it, um, there's a lot of storage. So, yeah. and I, I feel like there's, you know, not nothing on there that I wouldn't want the NSA to see, but uh, it's, you know, it's just nice to know you control it. Carl in uh, Philly has a short comment about your future. I'm a happy user and a listener for many years. I eagerly await the completion of Squirrel, and then once you finish that, spin right six point one, and then boy, this guy's really looking ahead, version seven. <laughs> Please consider any improvements you could make to Spinrite specifically for solid-state drives because that's going to become more important in the future. I think you probably are aware of that, Mr. Gibson. Yeah, and um, even Spinrite 6.1 is going to pay homage to, uh, to SSDs. I will specifically call out um, ways that Spinrite 6.1 should be used with SSDs, for example, and we've talked about it already, but I, I'm just going to, I'm going to sort of make it more clear, for example, that level two is what you want to do normally on an SSD. Um, although level four is not going to hurt it, uh, it is writing. And so we know that, that writing takes a, a tiny toll on an SSD, but reading doesn't. Uh, reading is a non-destructive process and doesn't wear the SSD. Uh, so running level two ver over level four would make sense. But I, I absolutely, uh, for anyone who's who's interested, I, f I mean, it's really because, as I said before, because Spinrite has a future with solid state, because it's always going to be the case that manufacturers are going to be relying on error correction and they're going to be, you know, they're going to be, putting as m much as many bits as they as they can get away with and then they're going to push it a little further than they probably should for the realities of co you know com commercial competition uh competitiveness uh and so it's uh, spinrights definitely going to stay in the game well i like that ben in australia shares his thoughts about website hosting Provider Steve, I won't bore you with too much praise here, but please consider the usual sentiments. <laughs> After the question you had on the last show, I thought I'd pop in a quick two cents. I've been a happy DreamHost customer for years now. 
I'm on shared hosting since it provides ample space and bandwidth for my needs. They also offer VPS solutions, which I've used in the past to run proprietary services, etc. Currently hosting four websites under my account. I've set up customers on other accounts with them, all without any issues. My hosting, DNS, databases have all been migrated over the years as they've upgraded servers, and I've not noticed any downtime or issues related to this. The features and specs stream hosts offer is a superb is superb uh, in my humble opinion, and I have not come across such a flexible hosting provider in my 15-year career as a developer. I've used many other providers, including one plus one and one uh, for clients' websites and emails. The good Padre suggested have not experienced problems with one and one, but found their feet. Is this just an ad? But found their feature set to be very limited. No. It's a plug. Okay, I'm not going to go on. It's just a plug for DreamHost. That's nice. Do you have a okay. hand? Is there well, a question there? Um, no, but we discussed this. Uh, uh, there are about 3,000 the hosting companies. Well, and, and the, the, the original question was, you know, uh, someone wanted to use a hosting provider. And, um, uh, and... I knew of DreamHost, yeah, but Dream someone said to me that, that they'd been purchased by someone or no, that they'd know. gone out of business or something. Uh, Padre was saying that one plus uh, one and one was the one he was uh, uh, suggesting. So I just wanted to let people know that th yeah, this guy... I don't want to get in the business uh, of plugging hosting providers because okay. there's so many of them and there is nothing to distinguish DreamHost and one and one from others. And, oh, okay. And well, unless you've a, tried them all, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a plug for any of them. You okay. use your, you do your own hosting. We use SoftLayer. We know SoftLayer is good because that's what we've been using for eight years. Uh, we're actually moving many of our machines to a hosted Drupal solution soon, I think. But I, I don't want to get in the business of plugging these guys. Okay. Thank you, though. Bill in Miami writes, I am overjoyed for once that Steve is dead wrong. Well, <laughs> shall I go on? Steve, at the same time I was listening to your podcast uh, containing the grim report that XP registry hacks... Or that the XP Reg hack appeared to work no more. My one XP, oh, the one that we were talking about that makes XP look like the uh, yes embedded XP, XP. Embedded. yeah. Yep. My one XP machine was cheerfully updating. Since then, all three of my other XP machines have done the, the same. I'm not sure why you had problems, but uh, it doesn't seem universal at this point. Okay, so. Uh, I'm glad for the feedback. I've heard from other people, and so I just wanted to correct the record. Um, the and you'll you'll remember Leo that I said I was going to apply the hack on uh, an XP SP3 machine, my, my little mailing station where I have a weighing scale and a label printer and so forth. Uh, I did that, and it it brought in a bunch of old updates. Uh, but hasn't continued to do any additional updating yet other people have continued to cruise along so uh i can't explain it i don't know why this one machine of mine isn't doing it but that's so that's anecdotal uh it is definitely the case that xp machines that have that uh that link added to their registry are continuing to update and and receive uh, the security patches for probably uh, till 2019, as I remember, five more years. Incidentally, a number of people in the chat room saying that they've been very unhappy with DreamHost. So I, ah. I really don't like anecdotal recommendations. When you go out and you review, as you often do, these guys and really do the job, that's a different thing. But okay, anecdotal recommendations are as good as the person who's telling them. 
Uh, and I really don't want to start getting people writing you trying to get a recommendation for any, you know. Hey, let me just recommend my product. Matthew Inderweissen in Orlando, Florida has two quick questions. Steve, thanks, as always, for all you do. Two questions. For Squirrel, you mention on non-Touch ID devices, you'd like the user to just enter the first or last, I can't remember, part of their password to reconfirm that they are who they say they are. Hey, this sounds like a great convenience because I'm going to be using a password I can't remember. Haha. But the trade-off in security, wouldn't that require you to store more than just a full hashed password and compromise it a bit? Curious what ingenious ideas you have to pull off this nifty trick. And two, I've been looking at the online comparisons of backup storage surfaces, Wikilink, uh, and you're right. What does Wikilink mean? There, there's a link there? Oh, no. He, he, he was just saying that on, on, on Wikipedia. Oh, that one that we were talking about. Okay. Yeah. And you're right. It's pretty darn comprehensive. I just scanned through it on the show, and boy, yeah, it is long. Yeah. One thing is I was really hoping to get your thoughts or a list of services that encrypt files locally that are TNO and then backed up. To whoever, I'm still going over the list, and some of the answers may in fact be there, but ultimately, my question or request was, if you would uh, still not mind maintaining a page with your current recommendations for software that could do this, just like any preferences uh, you had, Steve's pick for hard disk encryption, coffee, razor blades, anything else you use, because <laughs> it lives up to your standards. So two parts to that one. Okay, so um, really great question about uh, the way Squirrel is going to operate. I... the the as we know, Squirrel is able to represent the user anonymously and in a in a sticky fashion, so that you so that it generates an identity per site, and every time you go back, you're able to reassert the same identity. But the problem is, we still need to to prove that we are who we are to Squirrel since we've empowered it with the ability to represent us to the entire internet. Uh, and to this, you know, still, we don't have a good way to do that. Now, Touch ID begins to get there, except that we know that even that can be spoofed. You know, it's your, your fingerprint can be lifted off, and people have demonstrated this, lifted a fingerprint off of a glass, turned it into something that you know, that spoofs the capacitive sensor in, uh, in the iPhone Touch ID and unlocks the phone. So I really think still a password is the best solution. Also, your fingerprint is not robust uh, in terms of, of uh, constitutional protection in the U.S., whereas something you know is. Uh, you cannot be compelled to relinquish a password. That's considered uh, a violation of your Fifth Amendment uh, rights against self-incrimination. So um, the idea with Squirrel is you only have to remember one. But if that's going to be the case, it's got to be a really good one. Um, because as with everything, if somebody captured like the if, if somebody cap, if somebody you know grabbed your phone and ran off with it for example and you had squirrel installed there the weakness would be brute force attack as is always the case with a password i've gone to extreme measures to make that incredibly resistant in fact this is the it's the most resistant system ever 
um, I I took the script uh, PBKDF and incre- created something called nscript, which iteratively uses script, which is itself is memory hard, in also in, all, in order to also make it time hard, to the point where when you put your full password in, it takes five seconds of of full saturation processing time to turn the password into a symmetric key. And there is no way to speed that up. So that's that's burdensome because five seconds is lo- too long to wait every time you want to re-authenticate. And so what I've done is I've created the notion of a hint. And the idea is that when you what, what the the first time you use Squirrel, when you're you bring the system out of hibernation or boots up or you unlock the your phone, that is, you know, when you're when you're starting a what we could consider a session for the best security, you should be be required to enter your really long password. And the idea, of course, is this is the only one you ever need to remember, sort of like a LastPass password, where then Squirrel does all the rest for you. So you enter that once, and then you are asked to re-authenticate as you use Squirrel, moving around the internet, logging into websites. Well, I don't want to require that you go through the, the, the pain of typing in that long password every time, certainly not waiting five seconds. That's that's a one-time process for maximum protection against anyone ever being able to brute force your password. It just becomes impossible if every single guess takes five seconds and and it actually takes 16 megabytes of RAM that's actively in use so it cannot be put on an FPGA or ASIC because there's just no way to give individual instances 16 megabytes of RAM. And that can be scaled easily in the future as systems evolve and it starts becoming feasible to give, uh, you know, GPUs and ASICs and things more memory. The idea then is when you enter the password, that five-second process synthesizes the symmetric key at that point, the first N characters, and the user can set that, that defaults to four. And I actually, I spent 12 hours yesterday working on exactly this code, and it's that part of Squirrel is finished. I'm getting very close to having the whole user experience portion of Squirrel finished. Then it's just the protocol stuff, and we're done. Um, so so at, at the moment that the the full password is decrypted from this five-second process, and there's no way to short-circuit that and no way to to get to the end without going through every single iteration to arrive at that. At that moment, the first N characters of the user's password are re-encrypted for one second. And that re-encryption is saved. So as long as that exists, the user is able to re-authenticate using only those first N characters. And while it's not 
as safe as requiring the whole password. The in terms of the the logic of use, really, what we want, what, what we're wanting to do is we're wanting to prevent anyone else from picking up your phone after you have authenticated with your long password and then be able to impersonate you. So the idea is every time you use Squirrel during a so-called session, it'll pop up when you're wanting to log into a site and say, what's your hint? And so you give it the first N characters. You go, you know, bing, 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 and say, okay. And a one-second process then, is, which is, which is, not going to be burdensome for people, uh, ensues, which decrypts the in-RAM encrypted under the hint key, and that allows Squirrel to function. And then anything that interrupts the session, your screen blanking, uh, and these are all uh, uh, options that can be tuned in the UI, your screen blanking, the system hibernating, um, if you walk away from the system for n number of minutes and you're able to set that, uh, then it then Squirrel automatically flushes that in-RAM key. And the next time you're asked to authenticate, you have to use the full authentication. and that But that, again, creates the temporary authentication, which you can use for the duration of the session. So, oh, and uh, the, if you ever mistype... Just that hint. If you don't get the first four correct the first time, Squirrel wipes the hint data from RAM and then reprompts you for the full password. So it's a it's a nice trade-off. If you want if you want more than four characters, you can. But again, it it takes one second in per guess. And if you've chosen a good password and it's long enough and in terms of cracking, uh, anyone who picked up, who like sat down at your computer or, or got your phone while you were authenticated, one mistake, and then they have to use the full password. So I think I've covered, I've, I've, it's a trade-off. Oh, and if you don't like that, you can turn that off. You can turn the whole hinting system off and requi- requiring you to enter your long password uh, every single time. Oh, and you can also control that five seconds is the default. You can control that. So if you'd rather use a long password but only have it take two seconds or one second, then you can do that too. Lots of flexibility. And, how and about it's all Steve, working, by the way. And how about a Steve's Picks page? Uh, a lot of people ask for that. Uh, <laughs> Maybe someday. <laughs> I just, uh, I, I, I can't do anything more than I'm doing right now. <laughs> we have a TwitPix page. We'll start putting your picks on the TwitPix page. How about that? Okay. I like it. Uh, that's right at the front on uh, Twit.tv. Matthew Urch. Urch. Writing from, I like that. Urch. U-R-C-H. Writing from Toronto. Wonders about cloud storage encryption. Seems to be the topic of the day. Uh, love security now. Been listening since I discovered it a few weeks ago. Welcome, Matthew. My question yeah. has to do with encrypting the contents of cloud storage. I know I can simply create a TrueCrypt volume volume I store on the cloud, but then every time I make a change, it's a massive file that has to be resynced. Is there a solution right. to ensure my data is protected on the cloud that is a little friendlier to the syncing nature of those cloud solutions? I would think uh, file by file would be better, right? 
I right. found CryptSync, which is a Google code page, C-R-Y-P-T-S-Y-N-C. Seems like a good solution, but I lack the knowledge to vet it myself. Have you heard of it, or is another solution out there? So I think I sort of stepped on this one already. Uh, when Because I, I, I remember when I chose this, this was the the reason I wanted to mention Boxcryptor, which uh, I have and I have been looking at. Uh, and, I mean, everything about it I'm liking. They've got full documentation of their crypto. They lay out what they do. Uh, you can buy it. It is it's completely cloud provider agnostic. So you can use it on your own systems. You can use it on, on your own remote storage or on cloud providers. You, you, you could encrypt folders remotely and then have other ones that are not encrypted. So anyway, I would say to Matthew, take a look at Boxcryptor. Um, uh, I, I need to look, essentially what I'm going to do is, is rather than try to talk about every remote cloud provider under the sun, and, and as we've seen, there are just too many of them. I just can't. I mean, people, ever, ever since I mentioned I wanted to do this, it's like, you know, I, I've, people are writing about ones I've never heard of. Um, I'm less I'm less interested in the monolithic, oh, don't worry, we'll take care of you. I understand there's a market for that. Um, you know, uh, uh, Jenny is using the one that uh, is a frequent sponsor of the show, uh and I'm blanking Carbonite. on it. Carbonite, yes, because and that's perfect for her. You know, it provides the 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 the, the set it and forget it backup that she needs. But for our more techie users who want, you know, like you know, to roll their own, what what I really want to find is the right client side tool. Oh, and the other thing about Boxcryptor is cross platform: Windows, Mac, iOS, Android. So they've got all that covered. So I would say take a look at that. Uh, and I've not looked at CryptSync, so I can't uh, speak about it, but I definitely will. And uh, we'll end up doing a roundup of all that. You remember, I'll tell you, I tell you when I use, just as a, to throw it in, uh, you remember Phil Zimmerman, who, um, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. P, uh, not Phil Zimmerman, that's the PGP guy. Who did PKZip? Um, uh, Phil Katz. Kaplan. Katz. Kaplan. Katz, right. Katz. His Phil company, Katz. PKWare, does uh, a program called Vivo. Which um, the idea is yes. you continue to use Dropbox or whatever, and it's file public key file encryption. So you, it's it's what you talked about with the pre-internet encryption or P yeah. Pi, <laughs> right? Pi, you're right, right? Yeah. Pi. <laughs> so that would work, right? If you did a file by file before you sent it up to Dropbox. Uh, yes, and and they are one on my list of of like the of it done right. I've used them. I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, so, okay, good. There you go. Yep. I don't know how much that costs. I can't remember. Uh, it's not free, though. It's a commercial product. Brian Mooney, Springdale, Arkansas, wonders about the best mini router configuration for providing network isolation. In a recent podcast, you were discussing Wi-Fi network light bulbs and the Internet of Things. You recommended keeping those sort of devices on a separate Wi-Fi network. Uh, for instance, the router's built-in guest network, or if you can't get that the a second router two questions first how robust and secure do you think a typical consumer router's guest network function is actually i've been wondering that myself at isolating <laughs> traffic from the rest of my home network second if i were to add a, a second router and provide a guest wi-fi network tell me about the proper physical configuration should it be plugged into my existing router 
placed between my existing router and my cable modem? Should I have three routers in a Y configuration with the one end router providing guest Wi-Fi, the other providing home Wi-Fi, both plugged into a third router connected to my modem? What do you say? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, yes, uh, this came up because we were talking about just sort of in general the the security concerns about having all of these random appliances on someone's Wi-Fi network where we've we've we're seeing already the not surprising security vulnerabilities because people are rolling their own solutions f because um we're not yet in a position where the standards have been adopted we talked about the three different standards which are on their way but they're you know months old at this point so they've not yet begun to appear in products um so the i think the only way to be comfortable is to to have two Wi-Fi networks, one that your critical infrastructure stuff runs on, that is your personal computers and so forth, and another one that is untrusted, the so-called guest network, where you can also have your light bulbs and your refrigerator. And uh, didn't we have a pasta machine on that? Or was that? No, that was Spinrite <laughs> that was going to make pasta. Um, so, so, okay, so here's the issue. We... If you had two routers in series, so you have your cable modem and the and router A, and then router B is plugged into router A, and these are both Wi-Fi routers, then the 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 nice thing is remember that we sort of can think of routers like one-way one-way valves. They allow stuff out but not in. Um, that's the nature of NAT. So what that means is that your highest protected data, if that was behind the innermost router, router B, then there is no visibility from router A into router B. Um, now, the problem with this is, is sort of what level of hacking might go on because, because there, um, if your untrusted router is A and you've got untrusted devices there, that's still using Ethernet as its, um, as, as its underlayer technology you know the 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 um the phys the physical uh uh protocol is ethernet and there are still problems with arp and arp spoofing that is it might be possible for a device on the untrusted network to to convince router b that it is the gateway using arp technology and that would cause router b's traffic to go to the device on router a so that's a problem um if we reverse the roles and we make the bad we make the untrusted network be behind the untrusted network is the inner one that then the problem is its traffic 
is going to be going through the trusted network, and that just doesn't seem right either. So we've what we've demonstrated is neither series-connected routers are real are robustly secure. If you if you had to choose one or the other, I think I'd rather I'd I, the, the an, an attack down at the at the Mac and Mac address and ARP level uh, would be pretty sophisticated to pull off. So I think I'd rather have the inner network be the trusted one and the outer one not be trusted. But routers are now cheap, especially non-Wi-Fi routers. I mean, you know, everyone probably has them in the attic from before Wi-Fi. So the, the absolute strongest solution is as Brian suggests, the Y configuration, where the cable modem is connected to a non-Wi-Fi router to which both of the Wi-Fi routers are connected. Now, essentially, both networks are at parity, but they are completely cut off from each other. They, because the routers route IP packets and do not route Ethernet packets. That is, they are, not, they are not Ethernet bridges. They are IP bridges. What that means is that, they are, that the routers are, are, are moving IP packets across, but they are, they, are, they are creating completely separate Ethernet networks. So now we technically have four Ethernet networks. There's the little tiny network between the cable modem and the first router. Then there's the two networks between each of the... Actually, we've got five Ethernet networks. The one from the cable modem to the first router. Then the two Ethernet networks to each of the Wi-Fi routers. And then the two, two more Ethernet networks behind each of the two Wi-Fi routers. And every single one of those is disjoint and cannot be attacked. So that's the way uh, to set things up if you want maximum security. Use any any standard uh, non-Wi-Fi router. It doesn't have to be non-Wi-Fi, but you don't need it to be Wi-Fi as, the, as that, that first one connected to the outside world, to the cable modem, and then a pair of Wi-Fi routers that are essentially peers of each other, but there's no way for them to have any traffic, uh, 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 you know, hacks b- between them because they, there's just no way they have any control to get across to the other guy's network. As for how secure the, the current guest network functions are in routers, I have no idea. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of attacks against these routers, so I wouldn't I wouldn't bet that while the technology is trying to be secure, I just don't know if they pulled it off. Question eight: Mark Harold in uh, Sydney with a question about squirrel. I've been very interested in squirrel since you first mentioned the idea. So today I was eager to try out Ralph Vondracek's Android client. After testing for a while, I made a suggestion to Ralph regarding the inclusion of an auto-logout feature, 
something I think banks would be keen to see. This got me thinking about the potential for widespread acceptance of Squirrel. If, for example, a developer decided to allow very short authentication passwords, let's say four characters, and a client were released, this fact alone might limit Squirrel's acceptance by financial institutions. Could this occur? And if so, do you agree this could weaken what is otherwise a rock-solid solution to replace usernames and passwords? I guess what I'm suggesting here is a certification process where Squirrel clients must meet minimum specs, banks and the like, might, might be then able to reject clients that are not certified. Thanks for the great podcast. Wish you every success with Squirrel. Mark Harold, Sydney. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, I hadn't thought about that before. Of, I mean, in nine months. Um, because one of the things this does is, uh, as Mark rightly points out, Squirrel isolates the uh, or moves essentially the authentication uh up to the client where now the user is authenticating themselves to the squirrel client and then we've got you know absolutely world class robust authentication between the squirrel client and the website but what that means is we're blinding the website f- from any information about how well the user is authenticating with the client. That is to say, with current technology, we're all, we are all hitting the problem of, especially back in the old days, of, of websites saying, oh, you know, your password must be at least eight characters. Because when we're giving the site our password, the site is able to make some evaluation of how secure the password is. Um, in this situation, there's, there's, there's deliberate isolation so that, you know, th- so that uh, sites don't have any way of knowing what, how the user's authenticating to their Squirrel client. Now, I've built in a password complexity acceptor in my Squirrel client uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, the gang and the news group will be pounding on it and we'll, we'll see what they think about it. Uh, it separates out the password. It classifies each character as a alphabetic uppercase or lowercase, special character or numeral or something else because it has to be multilingual also because we've now up to 60 languages that that people are waiting to translate the user interface into. So I had to accommodate multilingual passwords as well. And then it looks at, uh, uh, at, it it examines the password for transitions between classes, between those classes, number, total number of unique characters so that it it rates like a, a chain of ones or chain of dots or something it gives you credit for them but not as much um and so number of uh, uh total length number of repetitions total number of unique characters and transitions and then it puts that into a formula to come up with a complexity value. So, oh, and it gives you a meter as you're entering your password, sort of training you and helping you choose a good password. But I've implemented that. Nothing forces all Squirrel clients to do that. I hope they will, um, but Mark's right. I I don't know. I haven't looked at Ralph's Android client. He's got one running, by the way. Um, 
but if it, if it allows you to put in a short password, um, that's you know a concern. So I I've, I don't know what I'll talk with the gang over in the news group um, and see what they think. We, Squirrel could declare the password length that the user is using in the protocol. Um, I don't like that. And of course, the client could be lying. So that seems kind of flaky. Um, but Mark certainly raises a good point. Um, it's really up to the user to strongly authenticate themselves so that their use of their client is not hacked by somebody else. Fair enough. Question nine. Jeff Coors was wondering about Squirrel's uh, PRNG, pseudo-random number generator, and the Libre SSL forking problem. Steve, thanks for the show and your detailed explanations of security issues. In episode 464, you covered the issue Andrew Ayer flagged in Libre SSL's pseudo-random number generator, PRNG, in which a grandchild of a forked process with the same process ID as its grandparent could generate the same sequence of random numbers as its grandparent, in that episode, you mentioned that Squirrel's Perng, do you pronounce it Perng? Would be. <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever tried to pronounce it. <laughs> well, but if you're going to say squirrels. Squirrel, you ought to say Perng. Uh, Pseudo random number generator would be immune to this problem. Could you please elaborate? Is it because Squirrel's random seed includes the time of the process's creation and the PRNG automatically reseeds itself periodically? When you describe Squirrel's PRNG and 456, you also said Squirrel doesn't need a lot of entropy to run. Would Squirrel's approach work for an SSL library, or does SSL need too much entropy? It's, it's, uh, that qu this question hit me because I've, I've had the same thing on my mind ever since uh, we got some sense for how poor the pseudo-random number generator in LibreSSL, which is OpenSSL, apparently is and, and actually it was libre the, the what andrew found was that in moving from open ssl to libre ssl they 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 neutered the ability to request a reseeding of the package's pseudo random number generator such that children of children would inherit the same entropy pool and then start generating identical pseudo-random numbers, which is not good. So I've been wondering, okay, I solved this problem easily. And, like, why doesn't something that's in such heavy use as OpenSSL, I mean, even having to request a reseeding is kludgy. And I think it's because they're just, they're living in a land of C, and, and they're thinking only as software people, and wanting plat complete platform independence because doing this right requires some hardware. It requires dipping down into the hardware and using this. I mean, in the hardware is, as I described when I talked about Squirrel's PRNG technology, incredible entropy. I mean, there is so much going on that is beyond a programmer's control, beyond anyone outside the chips 
ability to know the chip is maintaining all kinds of counters, branch predictors, uh, cache misses and matches, and all this richness in order to get the performance that it has that nobody outside the chip has any control over. And, and so just asking the chip for some of that. Now, I have the advantage that mine's running on an Intel. I'm writing an assembly language in the first place and running on an Intel chip only. Um, so I can do this. But boy, this to me, this seems like so mission critical that there ought to be platform specific, hardware specific code in these packages that just reaches down and gets this because this is available on all the platforms just in, you know, in different shapes and forms. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, our last question. And it comes to us from Robert Elliott of North Battleford, where is SK? I don't know. I thought maybe Saskatchewan. Okay, yeah. Does that sound like Saskatchewan? Yeah, I think so. I'll go with that. <laughs> North Battleford, I don't think it's South Korea. Could be. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have North, North Battleford. Battleford. That sounds very Canadian, North Battleford. It, he brings us a nifty idea of the week. Odometer incrementation. Hello, Steve and Leo. Blah, blah, blah. Everything included <laughs> spin right. Went back and listened to all the podcasts, etc. At work, my boss was talking to our delivery driver about a new fleet card he was issued and how with this new card, the fuel purchaser needed to input the current odometer reading. Oh, that's clever. I was not involved in the conversation, but when I heard that, I was like, like Archimedes in the bath, Eureka! Would it be possible for the fleet card company to utilize the odometer reading as an OTP authenticating the purchase? Because the odometer is a forward-running counter, it would logically never repeat itself and could be used to verify the authenticity of the purchaser. In further discussion with my boss, he put forward the position, it might simply be accounting to assure that a person is not filling up a personal vehicle as well as a company vehicle. What do you think? And if it's a worthy uh, idea, please inc include it in the Q&A. I told them I was going to send this in to you, and they lovingly called me a geek. <laughs> it is Saskatchewan, well, by the way. Ah, um, I think, I, I don't know. I think it's probably an accounting measure, but I love that Robert, as a listener of the podcast, thought of it as a one-time password because really it, has, it really is clever. If you, I mean, it, it's a way of, of demonstrating if, if, you're all, if you're always driving the same car and in a fleet mode, you're always, the delivery driver is using the fleet vehicle. Um, then, as he notes, that counter is, is, as we would say, monotonically increasing. And so a an absolute security check, in addition to verifying that the odometer and the gas consumption are sort of staying consistent. So, you know, as his boss mentions, it could just be to catch the use of that of that gas card for non-fleet business. But similarly, if anybody back there was checking that every single use of the card demonstrated a reasonable increase in the reading. That's not something that any thief could ever know. And so here we've got, you know, a six-digit counter 
which could be anything between zero and, you know, 150,000 probably. And and it's not going to go very far between events where it needs to be refilled. So it has absolutely it, the, the many of the qualifications for a one-time password. I so thought that cool. was just yeah. a really great observation. Nice observation. By the way, what a surprise. Here we are in beautiful North Battleford, Saskatchewan. And, of course, the world-famous North Battleford Travelodge sign. <laughs> <laughs> and, and with that, we conclude... <laughs> another, another uplifting week of security. Steve's at GRC.com. That's where he hangs his hat. And, of course, that's where you'll find Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Yes. You'll also find 16 kilobit audio versions of this show. You'll find uh, full transcriptions written by an actual human person named Elaine. You'll find uh, many of the things he talks about including, in many cases, Steve's picks, because he sneaks them in there. From There's no one page, but believe me, his, his opinions are well-known, and they're all over there. Now, if you have a question for Steve, go there at grc.com, and the feedback form is grc.com slash feedback. That's the one and only place you can leave questions for Steve. Don't try the chat room. Don't try to send him email. It's just not worth it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Didn't Not we used to we get weird love. emails in return? I seem to feel like that was, for a while, you would send out a strange email in response. Was that my imagination? Like, don't email me. Oh, I probably had a cranky story. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you can go to our page and you'll get full quality audio and video as well of the show, twit.tv slash SN, or wherever you get your favorite podcast. We do the show every Tuesday right after Mac Break Weekly, around about 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, that'd be 2000 UTC on the Twit Network. Hey, really great to talk to you. Likewise, Leo. Have a wonderful weekend or week. I, I don't know what's in store for next week's uh, episode. Probably I will get to the analysis of the uh, the web-based password managers. That's on that's on my short list. Very good. Uh, because there were those, remember there was there were those yeah. five password managers yeah. that there was some question about their integrity. So I want to give that's going to require some study. Uh, I think that's uh, lined up for next week, unless some new disaster befalls us, <laughs> as does does seem to happen rather or, uh, with re some regularity every week. What fresh hell is this? Thank you, Steve. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Thanks, Leo. Security.